So this week, it's election week. Millions of Americans will head to the polls. Some have already done so, record-breaking numbers by mail and in early voting. And so either physically or by mail, they will go to cast a vote for a number of different offices, some ballot questions. But the biggest question that I think people are wanting to figure out uh, this week is who will be the next president of the United States of America? And I don't have to convince you of the tension or the angst of this political season. And no matter how you consume media, whether that's live television or um, online browsing, YouTube, social media, you've seen some of the political ads out there. You've seen snippets of stump speeches on the campaign trails. Maybe you've seen some or all of the presidential debates. I use that term loosely. Those aren't really debates. And every chance they get, each candidate, what are they doing? They're casting their vision for America. They're trying to answer the questions, of, to the, uh, provide solutions to the prom- problems we face. They're, they're giving um, policies for how they'll implement their vision. And I don't know about you, but every time I'm done watching those snippets or uh, w- what you see on media, every time I'm left thinking, they've just promised us the moon. And there's no way they can deliver. It's a classic case of over-promising and under-delivering. And whether it's to secure a person's vote or maybe to gain a competitive edge or simply failing to really consider if the promise you've made is feasible, when you overpromise, when I overpromise and underdeliver, we leave a wake of disappointment due to unmet expectations. And it's not just politicians who overpromise and underdeliver. Let me give you a couple more examples. How many times have you bought that product on Amazon? It, 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 it said it would solve the problem that you had. You were excited. You hit buy now. You didn't even go to that little screen before. You knew you wanted it right now. It gets there. You unpack it. You get it out. And you realize what? You've been duped. It's overpromised and it's under-delivered. What about that time when your contractor said the job would only take three months? True story, that's happening right now. And it's six months later and the job's not done. Another classic example of overpromise and under-delivering. Or how about that late night fast food run? Friend, listen to me. If you hear nothing else today, it will overpromise and under-deliver. Last example, it's the best one, the year 2020. I mean, has there ever been a year that overpromised and way under-delivered? Now this morning, we want to look at the very first example of all time, the first example in history of under, over-promising and, uh, and under-delivering in Genesis chapter 3. Here we find the man and the woman tempted by the serpent to eat the forbidden fruit. In fact, I would, I would pose to you today that every temptation ever since is essentially the same. Every temptation is over-promising, and friends, it will always under deliver. And their story is our story today. What happened in that garden so long ago has happened countless times ever since. It happens to you and to me. It's universal. Nobody is immune to it. And as we look at Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 to 8 this morning, we're going to see, we're going to look at temptation and we're going to learn three things. First, we're going to see the deception of temptation. Temptation is always selling a false bill of goods. 
It's promising the moon, but in reality, it's going to give you poison. Second, we're going to see the desire of temptation. Because you see, temptation is always aimed at the level of your heart, at the level of your desires. That's why it's so difficult to resist. Oscar Wilde said, I can resist everything except temptation. And third, we're going to see the devastation of temptation. Because in the wake of under-delivering, the devastation always goes beyond our unmet expectations. So we're going to see the deception, the desires, and the devastation of temptation. So let's start in verse 1 together. We read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, if you've been tracking with Genesis 1 and 2 so far, we've been introduced to three characters. We've been introduced to God, we've been introduced to Adam and his wife Eve. And now we're introduced to a new character onto the scene, the serpent. And here's what we're told so far, that this serpent is a created being that apparently can talk, and he's crafty or cunning. So it begs the question, who is the serpent? Now, Genesis 3 does not reveal the identity of the serpent, though later on in the Bible, uh, in Revelation chapter 20, uh, we're, we're told that the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, is that we get this connection that that serpent really is Satan, some kind of manifestation of Satan. We learn from Matthew 12, 24 and Matthew 25, 41, that Satan is this prince of demons, that he's the leader. We know from the biblical story that God created everything good, including angels. However, that there's this group of angels who have defected from their service to God and have rebelled against him. And that Satan is the leader of this rebellion. And I want to say, scripture does not give a long and detailed account of the fall of Satan. There's some parts of Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 that seem to be referencing Um, the fall of Satan. That's about all that we have on it. But we know that in Genesis 3, the serpent is some kind of embodiment, some kind of satanic incarnation of Satan on a mission to undermine, disrupt, and uncreate God's good order. But outside of that, there's a lot of questions. Much is left unanswered. So we don't know how the serpent got into the garden in the first place. We don't even know why God would create uh, a being that would rebel against him, let alone uh, go on to play a major role in the deception and the fall of humanity. The Bible is simply not interested in filling in those details. Now, I'm not saying those aren't good questions. I think they're great questions. And it's fine for us to ask those questions and even speculate and dialogue about what we think might have been going on as long as we know that the answers to those questions will have to wait. We don't like waiting. We like to know now. We like to have all of our questions answered. But the Bible simply wasn't written to tell us Satan's story. That's not the primary objective of the Bible. In fact, the Bible was written to tell us about our story. It introduces us to our maker, to our God. It tells us who we are. And it answers the question of what went wrong and how our relationship with God can be restored. 
So with that said, the serpent steps onto the scene and he begins talking to the woman. And he says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, right off the bat, the serpent begins to twist the word of God. Very subtly, underneath that question is a question of God's goodness. He's, he's questioning the, the, uh, the abundance and the generosity and the goodness of God. What, what he's really saying is, Eve, God is withholding from you. Did he really say you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? He's keeping things from you. He's keeping abundance from you. God is stingy. And not only has the serpent cast a shadow on God's goodness, he's beginning to sow mistrust into her heart. Now let's look at verses 2 and 3 and see how she responds to him. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now if you notice, Eve corrects the serpent's subtle lie. She says, no, he didn't say we couldn't eat from any tree. He just said we couldn't eat from the tree that's in the midst of the garden. And I like that. Eve, Eve begins to say, well, that's not true. And she corrects him. She even adds that God has told them that they're really not supposed to touch it because the consequence of consuming this fruit is death. We're not sure if maybe there was some prior conversation that, that God had. Surely they've, God and, and Eve and Adam have had more conversations than just the one written down. And so I, I'd like to just kind of take Eve at her word that, that she's not adding to his word. That, that she knows there, there's really, it's not wise to touch that which will kill you. Right? So what is this tree all about? What is this tree in the midst of the garden? Well... Back in Genesis chapter 2, 15 and 17, we learn that this tree is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let me remind you of it. Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So this tree of the knowledge of good and evil was planted in the Garden of Eden to lead the man and the woman to the knowledge of good and evil. Now listen, not by eating of its fruit, but by abstaining from it. Let me explain. Adam and Eve, as he's created humanity, has given them this gift to make free decisions. They have the gift of alternative choice. So they can choose to obey God and abstain from this tree, or they can choose to disobey God and eat of this tree, right? They have alternative choice. And so what they were supposed to do was trust the Lord, obey his words, and in so doing, you think about it, a lifetime of obedience, a lifetime of, 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 of trusting in the Lord, they would have grown into maturity. They would have begun to understand the difference between good and evil, right and wrong. Because you see, in God's economy, we grow into maturity one decision at a time. We grow in, an, an, in our ability to obey one decision at a time. Faith is developed, it's strengthened one decision at a time. And if Adam and Eve had resisted temptation and been faithful to avoid 
the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would have learned and grown in their ability to discern and understand the difference between good and evil. John Collins provides a helpful summary. He says, God intended that through this tree, humans would come to know good and evil, either from above as masters of temptation or from below as slaves to sin. It's quite genius, in fact, that one way or another, man would know good, the knowledge of good and evil, either by their faithful obedience to him or through their transgression. So the tree was there to provide this opportunity for the man and the woman to grow in knowledge, to grow in maturity, to grow in wisdom by learning to live in faithful obedience to their loving father. But we find the serpent is not going to go away that easily. Look at his rebuttal in verses 4 to 5. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So the serpent begins with subtlety, just sowing these little seeds of mistrust. And now he's gone full on. He is directly challenging the word and the character of God. He says, if you eat this fruit, you will not die. It's a, it's a direct contradiction of God's word. What he's basically saying is God has been lying to you. And what's more, God has been holding out on you. He's been keeping you in the dark. There are good things that he will not give you. And now it's time for you to take what is rightfully yours. Do you see the layers of deception? I mean, the very fact that Satan has shown up in the garden as a serpent, as just one of the other creatures, speaks to his deceptive nature. He starts spewing lies to her about the consequences of eating the forbidden fruit. In fact, it's a classic satanic move to try to convince you and me that the consequences really aren't as bad or as catastrophic as they are. What is he saying? Go for it. You won't get caught. Go for it. No one will ever know. Go for it. You can delete your browsing history. Go for it. You can delete that text. Go for it. It's just a little extra money. Go for it. And this is the kicker. God will forgive you anyway. I've heard all of those lies before. You see what's happening there? Satan is trying to convince you of the minimalization of the consequences. It's not really going to be that bad. Then Satan says, hey, actually, if you eat this fruit, you can be like God. Now, if you're tracking with the story, you should be pausing and going, wait a minute. I thought they were already like God. Isn't that what Genesis 1 tells us? That they were made in the image of God, in the likeness of him. Man and woman are already like God. So what's alluring about what the, what the, the serpent is tempting them with? What, what is so alluring about this temptation? You see, what Satan is offering them is a chance to be like God, but in a way that was different from the way they were created to be like God. You see, they were made to be like God in the sense of resembling him and representing him as, as, the, as his vice regents reigning and ruling underneath 
his authority so that as they executed a rightful, responsible dominion, as they extended the work of creation to the ends of the earth, they would be uh, doing this like God in the same way that God is extending his goodness and creation and his glory. They would have the opportunity to do so. But what the serpent is offering them is a chance to rival God. See, God has made us so that we can know him, but for them, that's not enough. It's not enough for us just to know some things. We want to know everything and be omniscient. God has given us power that we can cultivate and subdue, but that's not enough for us. We want to be what? All-powerful. We want to be omnipotent. God has delegated authority to us so that we can rule and reign, but we want to be sovereign and rule over everything. The over-promise here is that they can not merely resemble God, but that they can rival him. See, the deceiver has come into the garden and brought abject disruption and disorder. And in just a few short verses, we've seen a perversion of the created order. Everything's been flipped up on its head. It's been reversed. It's been uh, inverted. You see that? Man and woman were created to have dominion over the animals and over the plant life. We see a demonstration of this in Genesis 2 as Adam is naming the animals and creating a taxonomy. But in Genesis 3, we don't find them reigning and ruling, cultivating and subduing according to God's way for God's glory. Now the serpent has put them at the bottom. Now this creature, now this animal, now this serpent is reigning and ruling over them through the false promise that they could become God. This is how the ancient serpent operates, through deception. And because he's not omnipotent, because he's not omniscient, nor he's a creator, he continues to operate in the same old ways today. Right now, Satan is still operating by deception. In fact, Jesus will later call him the father of lies in John 8, 44. This is Jesus speaking about Satan. He says he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Why? Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is tempting Eve by maligning the words and character of God. He's minimizing the consequences and he's deceptively over-promising and as soon we will find out, he will under-deliver. And the same goes for us today. So if Satan is the deceiver, if he is the father of lies, how will we resist his temptation? We need to be able to recognize lies from the enemy. Satan is a deceiver and temptation will always come with lies attached to it. And the best way to combat lies is what? With truth. That's how we combat lies is with the truth. That's why as a church we stress over and over again the importance of storing up the truth of God's word in our hearts. When I first became a Christian and uh, there was a, a, an older man in the church who saw that I was uh, a young man without parents in the church. I was a, a teenager. He, he, he said, hey, I want to disciple you. I want to teach you what it means to follow Christ. And I'm forever grateful for his discipleship in my life. And the very first verse he told me to memorize was Psalm 119 verses 9 and 11. It goes like this. How can a young man keep his way pure? 
by guarding it according to your word. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. What was he saying? If you're going to resist temptation, if you're going to stand up under it, you have to store your heart with the truth of Scripture. So that when you have the lies coming in, there's just a, 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 a storehouse of truth stored up. So that when you hear the lie, you go, wait a minute, that's not what God said. You can recognize those lies. And then we're able to combat the deceiver's lies with truth. When the enemy directly contradicted God's word, that should have signaled to the first man and woman that this serpent was an enemy to be rebuked, not a friend to be followed. The first thing we learn about temptation is that it is deceptive. It's deceptive. Second, we learn that temptation is aimed at our desires. The story goes on in verse 6, and it says this, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, right here in verse 6, the serpent's trap has been laid. Not only was it deceptive, but it was aimed at the man and woman's desires. Now, we often think when we look back on uh, one of our failures that it seems to us that temptation was kind of sudden and random. Like, I didn't see it coming. I didn't know what was going on. But actually, temptation is calculated and aimed at our hearts. Whether or not we recognize it or not, by the moment we've fallen into it, there, there has been a plan in place. Now, instead of rebuking the snake for misrepresenting God's word and his character, Adam and Eve turned their eyes from the Lord to the tree. Do you see that in the text? See, they, they, they start looking at the tree. Well, it looks good for food. It seems to be delightful to the eyes. There's a promise that it would make us wise. There's something we don't have that it has for us. Instead of directing their energy into the dignifying work ahead of them, right? God has given them this amazing mission. They turned their attention to the tree. The fruit that God said was deadly, they call it good, right? What God has said is not good, it's deadly. They say, well, it actually looks really good. The fruit that was forbidden becomes a delight for him, for them. In fact, the word for delight can be translated as attractive or captivating. They're captivated by this fruit. and Now it has become their primary desire to the point where nothing about the fruit appeared dangerous or distasteful. Everything about the fruit should have said danger, distasteful. But now it looks delightful and delicious. Eve is deceived by the serpent. But don't forget, her husband, Adam, is standing right there with her. He's also deceived. R. Kent Hughes provides a helpful summary of him. Adam sinned willfully, eyes wide open, without hesitation. His sin was freighted with a sinful self-interest. He had watched Eve take the fruit and nothing happened to her. He sinned willfully, assuming that there would be no consequences. 
Everything was upside down. Eve followed the snake. Adam followed Eve. And no one followed God. So the serpent's temptation has worked. They've listened to the serpent's voice instead of God's voice. They reordered their desires so that the fruit of this tree has become primary. They've decided to become rivals of God. And both the man and the woman take the fruit and they eat. Russell Moore, who has an excellent book called Tempted and Tried. In fact, if you're going to read one book this year and this upcoming year about how temptation works and how to overcome it, I commend to you his book, Tempted and Tried. It has a great, uh, lots, lots of great uh, practical insight on how to overcome uh, temptation. He writes this. Temptation starts with a question of identity and moves to a confusion of desires and ultimately heads to a contest of futures. I think that's a very helpful way to think about how temptation works. First of all, there's a question of identity. Then there's a confusion of desires. And it's really an ultimate contest of futures. You see, what happened in that moment is the man and the woman forgot who they were. They were created in the image of God. They were image bearers. They were given this dignifying task of reigning and ruling, cultivating and subduing on behalf of God. They forgot that they were loved by God, that they experienced uninhibited relationship with him, that their generous and loving father had withheld no good thing from them. They forgot about that. Instead of ruling over the serpent, the serpent ruled over them. Instead of protecting and keeping the garden, they let an enemy in. Instead of cultivating and enjoying and expanding the garden, they took the forbidden tree. Instead of listening to the voice of God, they listened to the voice of the serpent. In short, they forgot who they were. They forgot what they were called to do. And then their desires became confused and disordered. This is where we have to see that Adam and Eve in this moment are not helpless victims. We often do that. We try to take the blame off of ourselves and say, I was tempted as if we had no part to play. But friends... Our desires show that we do what we want to do. We are not helpless victims. We are complicit in our treason. You and I do what we do because we want to do it. We are not coerced or forced. We are tempted and baited, yes. But when we engage in sin, we do so willingly. Every single one of us. We reorder our priorities. We reorder and shuffle our desires. And when we all take a bite, we do so because we want to. We see it as good. We see it as a delight to the eyes. We see whatever it is as something being withheld from us that we simply want to have. Just like Adam and Eve, we see, we lust, We desire and we eat, every single one of us. And ultimately, we do so because in that moment, we've forgotten who we are. We believe the lies and we put our faith and our hope and our trust in a future that will ultimately disappoint. Do you see how the serpent was offering them an alternative future? 
Instead of serving God at his vice, as his vice regent, Satan is saying, serve me instead. What's happening here? Satan is trying to kidnap the children of God to become their father. He's putting before them a future to be their own masters, to rival God. And that's ultimately what is so alluring and appealing to them. See, we often think, what's, what's the big deal? They ate a piece of fruit. And in that moment, don't you see us minimizing the nature of sin? This is simply not a case that they ate the wrong piece of fruit from the wrong tree. It is an outright rejection of God as their rightful king and their loving father. The fruit is merely symbolic of their desire to provide for themselves, to decide for themselves, to secure for themselves, and to ultimately exalt themselves. That's what's going on here. Make no mistake about it. Temptation is deceptive. It can cause you to forget who you are. It can, it can offer you an alternative future to believe wrongly about God and his word. It is aimed at the desires of your heart. And when you give in to temptation, we do so because in that moment, that's exactly what we want. So when you feel the disorientation of temptation, when you feel torn in that moment before you've given in, as you're weighing out the desires of your heart, you need to stop and pray. If the first practical truth is to store up the word of God in your heart, in that moment before you've given in, you need to stop and pray. Why? Because prayer takes our eyes off of the temptation in that moment, of that thing we think we have to have, and it puts our eyes back on Jesus. David Mathis, in his, he has a very helpful blog over at Desiring God on Resisting Temptation. In it, he gives us this little gem. You will not regret resisting sin. You will regret giving in. It doesn't get more put to the point than that. Friends, you will not regret resisting sin. When it's over and you've resisted, and you're on the other side of that temptation, you will not regret walking in righteousness. But when you give in, you will regret having given in. Friends, that's why prayer is so critical in the battle for our souls. It will take your eyes off of the temptation and put it back where it belongs on Christ. Temptation is deceptive and it's aimed at our desires. Now let's see our final point that that temptation leads a trail of devastation. Look what happens in Genesis 3, 7 to 8. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. Now, just a quick disclaimer, we're not going to cover all of the devastation and implications of the fall today. We've got the rest of Genesis 3 in our, uh, in our sermon for next Sunday. But even before we get to all the curses and consequences that follow in chapter 3, we already see an immediate ripple of devastation. Verse 7 tells us that their eyes were opened and that they knew for the first time that they were naked. 
The serpent's claim that they wouldn't die was a half-truth, which really is a lie. Though they didn't die that day, death entered the garden. Because you see, death is more than just that state immediately following your last breath. It is that, right? When, when uh, 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 so, you know, we're pronounced dead and we're not, our hearts aren't beating and we're not breathing anymore, that certainly is death. But death in the biblical picture is a much broader concept. It's the curse of the fall at large. It's our separation from the God of life. It's every bit of suffering and tragedy between life's first and final breath. Death is the guilt and the shame and the fear that encumbers and hinders our union with God and our enjoyment of the life he's given us. And that moment when the man and the woman tasted the fruit and their eyes were open and they recognized their nakedness, they tasted their first glimpse of death. Their unmitigated communion with God was severed and it was dealt a death blow. They felt the sting of death enter their veins and for the first time they knew and they saw evil. But it wasn't an evil outside of them, it was an evil inside of them. They did in fact receive the knowledge of good and evil but not in the way they expected. For the first time, they saw themselves and they felt guilt and shame and they knew that they had become evil. They went from, if you notice, in Genesis chapter one, very good to now very evil. And what was their immediate impulse? Their immediate impulse was to cover themselves, to hide from each other and to hide from God. And here's the great irony. In order to hide, what do they have to do? They have to use God's world. They have to take his creation to hide from each other in the presence of God. So what do they do? They take fig leaves God created to fashion a cover for themselves. They use the giftedness God has given them, the ability to make and create things. They use that ability to cover themselves, to cover their shame. And when God comes in the garden, to talk with them, to find out what's happened, they try to hide from God by hiding among God's trees. And it seems silly to us when we hear that, you know, Adam and Eve trying to hide from the omniscient, all-knowing God. We almost want to ask Adam and Eve, do you really think God doesn't know where you are? Do you really think God doesn't know what you've done? Have you ever played hide-and-go-seek with a two-year-old? It's a lot of fun. If you've never done it, I, I suggest it. A lot of times what will happen is they'll, they'll hide in plain sight. They'll just walk over to a corner and stand with their eyes closed, and they think they've hidden. And you can see them the whole time. They think you can't see them, but, you're, but they're right there. And friends, we do the exact same thing. Just like Adam and Eve, we try to hide from God. We take God's good gifts that he's given us things he's given us in creation. We use our gifts and talents and we use them to run and hide and distract ourselves from the presence of God. Now it's a little more sophisticated. We're not using fig leaves and trees to hide from God anymore, but we do it with substances and food. We do it with our careers. We do it with relationships. We do it with media. We use our giftedness and our abilities to build our own little kingdoms and pretend that we don't need God. And all of it is meant to hide ourselves and distract ourselves from the presence of God. 
So we never have to answer the question of God. All the while, we're like a two-year-old hiding in plain sight with our eyes closed. See, the greatest tragedy in Genesis 3 is the broken fellowship and relationship with God as humanity has rejected God's fatherly love and his good rule and reign. It's no less than treason against our rightful king. It's no less than turning their back on their good and loving father. See, in Genesis 1 and 2, you have God dwelling with his people. They're a dynasty of image bearers with this dignifying task of dominion as they rule and reign on God's behalf, extending the goodness and the glory of God to the ends of the earth. And now all of that has been lost. In Genesis 3, we lose the dwelling presence of God as we find at the end of chapter 3, they will be exiled, kicked out, banished from the garden. Our ability to serve as divine image bearers has been dealt a death blow. Right, We're no longer able to exercise responsible dominion over creation on God's behalf because now every single one of us seeks to take dominion on our own behalf. In fact, the word devastation doesn't even cover the half of it. Don't you see? Temptation always overpromises and way under delivers. Now I could just end the sermon there. Leave us in this wasteland of devastation. But fortunately, God's story doesn't end there. Jen Wilkin on her latest podcast on the Knowing Faith podcast says this. It's beautiful. God reigns and rules. Then he delegates reign and rule to the man and the woman. And then as we're going to see, the man and the woman decide that I don't want my part, but I want all of it. And as a result of wanting all of it, they essentially get none of it. And so they go from the highest place to the lowest place. And so, of course, that means we're going to need someone to go to the lowest place, to then be exalted to the highest place, to make it right again. And friends, that someone is Jesus Christ He is God's son, sent to create a new humanity and to succeed where our first parents failed. If you flip forward in the Bible to the Gospels, in fact, in three of the four Gospels, the writers give a detailed account of Jesus in the wilderness facing temptation by the exact same deceiver. Where our first parents faced temptation in a plush garden with an abundance of good food around them, Jesus goes to a barren wilderness and he's tempted in his state of weakness having been hungry and fasting for 40 days and he is tempted just like our first parents and just like we are and yet the writer of Hebrews says he was without sin for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin Like Adam and Eve, Jesus is tempted to provide for himself, to break his fast before the appointed time, to to turn these stones into bread. But Jesus knows man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes out the mouth of God. Like Adam and Eve, Satan tries to get Jesus to forget who he is and to make him question the goodness of God. But Jesus knows who he is. 
and that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And finally, like Adam and Eve, Jesus is tempted with the offer of self-exaltation and to worship creation instead of the creator. But Jesus rebukes Satan and says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. In every way that our first parents failed, Jesus triumphed. And friends, his triumph can be your triumph when you put your faith and trust in him. Jesus is the truer and greater Adam. He is the one who actively and righteously lived the life that you and I have failed to live. He is the one who descended to the deepest place of temptation in order to lift us out of the devastation of our sin. And though you and I have not actually triumphed in our trial against temptation, by grace, through faith, we can be united to Christ so that his victory becomes yours. Friends, temptation is deceptive. And if you are going to stand up under it, you must have the truth of God's word stored up in your heart so that you can combat the lies of the enemy. Temptation will be aimed at your heart. Why? Because Satan wants to kill you. He is not your friend. Look at me. He hates you. He is not merely looking to wound you. He is looking to kill you. That's why he aims temptation directly at your heart. If you're going to flee temptation and run to Jesus, you need to do so in prayer. And friends, remember, temptation always leads to devastation. It is always promising the moon. It is always way over promising and it will under deliver. Do not minimize the consequences. And even when we fail, because we all will, take heart because Jesus has secured for us everlasting victory. Let's pray.